0: Welcome to the Author's Podcast with Lisa Newton. Writing a book is a dream for many people, and in today's society, it has become easier and more important than ever. If you are an expert, speaker, coach, or an authority in your field, having a book is the new business card. It can increase your credibility, enhance your status, and make you the go-to person in your field opening doors and bringing a flood of opportunities straight to you. You can increase your fees and start choosing the clients you really want to work with. The Authors Podcast Show with Lisa Newton is designed to inspire, educate and inform you, both entrepreneur and individual, on how to write a book, as well as writer's tips and strategies on how to actually get that book written. On today's show, you learn more about how to write a book, including writing ideas, marketing, and how to succeed in getting a book written. Here we go with the Authors Podcast, and here is your host, Lisa Newton. Welcome to
1: another episode of the Authors Podcast. Today, my guest is called Nels Abbey, and he's written a book called Think Like a White Man, which is a bold, sharp, satirical self help book which skewers the prejudices of the modern day British workplace by explaining the rules by which mediocre white men continue to get ahead. Told through the voice of writer Nels Abbey and that of the fictional. Distinguished Professor of White People's Studies at Bishop Lamont Hood University, Dr Boulay Whitelaw III, this is a brilliantly funny book with a very serious point behind it. Nels Abbey is a British Nigerian writer who was inspired to write Think Like a White Man by his direct experience of trying to build a career in a white dominated areas, first in finance and later in the media. This is his first book, although his work appears in the recently published anthology, Safe, and he is based in London. So with that, I should have my guest Nels Abbey on the line.
2: Hello, how are you?
1: Hi, Nels. Very good. Thank you very much. I've been really looking forward to this interview because I think the book title within itself is quite intriguing and uh, it did make me chuckle, I, I must admit. Um, oh, brilliant. <laughs> So let's start at the beginning, really, then. Tell me a little bit about yourself, how you started out. You've worked in finance and in the media. So tell me about yourself.
2: Yeah. So I um, so I started my career about 15, 16 years ago. My original intention was to get into media, but like many people, I couldn't really find the routine. in. So I had a degree in economics. So that was always um very very a very good thing so i applied to a couple of jobs around and um the financial the financial world picked me up and i did quite well for myself there worked my way up to a very very senior level in multiple organ well i moved from one organization to another worked my way up to a very, very senior to a quite a senior level and then um i left because i had an opportunity a good opportunity to go work at the bbc finally and then uh, yeah so i went to work at a senior level at the bbc for a while and then um, I took some time out and currently taking some time out right now to do some writing work, of which you're seeing the fruits with Think Like a White Man.
1: Yeah. And so for how long did you think about writing this book to when you actually started writing and then to when you actually finished? Because sometimes people have these ideas and uh, I'm intrigued. So how long did it take you to actually get into it?
2: My, it's a good question, actually. So I'd had these, at any given time, I've always got about six or seven ideas that I know I need to work on eventually. And uh, this was one that was there for a while. I would say for a long, long time, it crossed my mind that book, I should really write a book on being back in the corporate world and, what, and the realities of it all. So uh, it was quite a while before, I would often I think mean, somebody reminded me the other day, Natalie Carter, who runs Black Girls Book Club, um, the other day she said that when I met her in about 2010 that I spoke to her about the book then <laughs> and it really made me laugh that wow, so it was on my mind at that point so from at least 2010 which is the bookmark and that's to be provided I had the idea in my mind but how to actually really get the idea down and with the best vehicle to get out and the best method of actually doing so that took me a lot longer to really get down so I think it was about another 6-7 years so two thousand. 16 before I really started writing it seriously
1: yes and I think it's very interesting that you've used a fictional character you know as, as a method to to get the the idea across so yep. how did that come about is it based on someone that you know or did you just think oh that this will be a good way to get across what it is I'm trying to say here
2: I felt that so there's many things going on there. If I was to ask you a question, Lisa, you're you run an authors podcast. Can you name another black British satirist? No. Exactly. So I thought to myself, okay, look, this, this is um that this is a get this is and it's something I've been doing for a while. I've been a I've been a, I never really acknowledged it, but I was writing satirical pieces for the Voice newspaper for different places here and there for a very long time since I was a teenager, and um, I thought to myself, okay, embrace it, accept it, acknowledge it. That's your that's your role. That's your lane. And I am not a comedian. I'm not somebody who can stand, well, I don't think I am, somebody who can stand on a stage and start making you laugh professionally for, night, for about an hour and a half or however long or so. I could probably do it for about two minutes before I start to sweat and run away. I felt that, look, I really wanted to write something really, really original. I wanted to write something that was very different, a departure from what we'd seen is from black writers in Britain. And I think that would be true of anything i write in the future. So I was then looking for the best way to really... Get this story across because I felt that if I just wrote a "What It's Like to Be Black in the Corporate World" book, which I could write, it would be very boring. It would be dull. It would be dry. Mm. You'll complain about racism. You'll cite statistics, etc., so on and so forth. But in terms of an exciting and an entertaining and engaging read, and something that I think is original and something that I felt would be a little bit naughty, because. It's very rare that us as black people have those sorts of books or those cultural pieces, particularly from a, from a black British perspective, um, yeah. that we have those cultural pieces and books that we can know that th- this is saying things that we really shouldn't be saying. Uh, this is naughty. It's true, but it's naughty. This is kind of funny in a different way or so. Something that you would... You probably would be a little bit worried about bringing it out in public, but you can't wait to get home to go and read or so. And um, and I felt that it was time for me to it was time for somebody to write something like that. And I felt like okay, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it very very well. So, yeah, no, I thought it, it's really good because
1: I was trying to think like what kind of genre would this be in, and would it be a book that perhaps you know I I feel like the world is ready for it but perhaps maybe 10 years ago I don't know maybe it wouldn't have been so to me I think it's a very timely piece
2: I think you well thank you thank you that's very very nice of you I think you're right to a degree there's no to a degree there I beg your pardon I think you're 100% right I think it is um, timely when I started writing it I I had my fears. I still had my fears to this very day in terms of reception and whether people would get it and whether or not British society in particular would actually want something like this. I mean, for example, we're trying to get it published. A lot of people turned me down. A lot of agents turned me down because they couldn't see where it would fit. That's another problem it had too, because again, about in terms of how do you classify it as you stated earlier on, what is it, what genre does it fit into? That's mm. anybody's guess. Because when you go to the bookshelf in any any like you go to a foils or waterstone you go to the humor segment it certainly doesn't fit in there and if you go into the political segment it's not a natural fit and um, if you go to the other books similar to well there's no i wouldn't say where our books are similar but if you look at my contemporaries in terms of black british writers who write on race it's not really a perfect fit there although i think it's a better fit there with uh, with those guys we are talking on the black experience Mm -hmm. so that was it but but if i just answer a question about brulee white law White Whitelaw is a Machiavellian professor of white people's studies. So I'd never really thought that to have a, in terms of black characters outside of say hip hop or grime or somewhere else like that, or the music scene, it's very rare that I've seen any black character a really, really Machiavellian, tough, shrewd nosed, um, Machiavellian black character or so. So I thought, okay, let me, let me create one. Let me create one who could tell this story. So almost as if, the same way Machiavelli wrote a book called The Prince, where he was writing a letter to the prince on how the prince should conduct himself. Mm. And he came up with classic gems like, it's better to be feared than love, but beware of being hated. I thought to myself, let me write something like that from a black perspective, to so that black person in the corporate world. And I thought it would be funny. I thought it would be interesting. And I think, uh, I think that was achieved.
1: Yeah, excellent. You were listening to The Author's Podcast with me, your host, Lisa Newton. You can email me, lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And remember, we have The Inner Circle, which is for writers just like you. And you can join us at writerbook.net. So if you're just tuning in, I am talking to Nels Abbey, who is the author of Think Like a White Man, which is a bold, sharp, satirical self-help book. When you say self-help, so would you say that this book is aimed at black British people or do you think it would be quite relevant in any English speaking world, for example, in Canada, in America, in Australia?
2: I'm a Pan-Africanist, but so in terms of my, I view black people as a family of people, essentially wherever we may be in the world, whether it's on the whether it's at home in Africa or so in Britain, wherever we might be. But this book is written from a particular perspective that mm. it is written in is written predominantly for societies in which you are likely to face racism. Mm. So if you are living in Nigeria, for example you will face many, many struggles, many problems, same as in Ghana. But the one that you probably won't face is racism. You probably won't have the white supremacy issue to overcome. If you're living in um, in South Africa, you most certainly will. If you're living in Britain, in America, or in France, or Australia, or you're a black person, you will, you will have those problems. So it's written largely to look at that, how do you overcome that particular hurdle that you're going to face in the world? And I thought that, okay... The problem is white supremacy, and you're and you're trying to look at how to overcome the hurdle of white supremacy. So, I decided to pick the whitest place I could, you could possibly inhabit to to get over that, to to exemplify that problem, um, or to metaphorize that problem. And I picked the corporate world um, for that purpose too, because I felt that like, look, if you want to really look at racism, the place where most people would face racism or would be in the corporate world, because that's where you're likely to have the most interaction, and um, it's mo- it's likely mo- to have the most authority over you. So that's why I chose that arena. But yes, would it, would it apply to people across the diaspora or everywhere else? Yeah, I believe so. I think everybody's got a lot to learn from there. I think I also do. White readers, particularly people who, who are in the hiring and firing business, so they've got a lot to learn too about, hey, what it's like being somebody from a diverse background or so from a black background going into a predominantly white institution. What does that person face on a day-to-day basis and how do they overcome it? How does it differ to your experience?
1: Okay. And is it that you have things happened to you and then you thought, you know what, you know, that I couldn't make this stuff up, you know, I need to put this into a book? Is, is it, has it been a series of events like that that you've just thought, you know, is it just me or does this happen to other people or, you know, is that how it all sort of came about?
2: It wasn't just me. So there was things happening to me, of course. There was things happening to my friends, but there was things happening to people around me, too. To people around me within the corporate world, I'd noticed, I'd experienced many different things that people had gone through, that people are going through, that people had I'd gone through. I couldn't help but notice that some of this stuff was completely weird, it was completely weird and completely strange. And how do we deal with it? Um, how do we deal with it? How do we overcome it? So I observed those things. Some of them were really, really funny things, for example. Yes, it was not. So my first day on the job, everybody mistook me for a security guard, started showing me their um, their ID <laughs> cards. their ID cards. Now, that was not a comfortable, comforting experience. That mm. was not a nice experience. But it was funny. I could see that, yeah, I could make this. This makes me laugh in retrospect. Um, there'll be other times, too. I don't know, you go to a Christmas party, for example, and year in, year out, one particular woman at the Christmas party, um, who's always a bit staunch as stush in the office, um, always a bit like doing a hard notes in the office, but she'd always want to dance with me at the Christmas party, and she'd want to always do a, a risque type. Before twerking was popular culture, for some bizarre reason, she'd know, she'd learned how to twerk, and she'd want to kind of twerk on me. And I felt like, okay, maybe she's trying to demonstrate her liberalism in a more, in a less formal environment. But I always felt myself. This is so embarrassing to me. I do not. I can't dance. I'm not good at these. So I, I'm not good at these. So I find these things really really tough to do and I'm, I'm quite sh- I'm quite a shy and retiring type sometimes so in particular in the corporate world I'm always thinking that there's eyes on me everybody's watching what I'm doing so when she us over to me and lifts me up and then a year in year out and it becomes a running joke that people would say oh yeah she's gonna come down she'll get to work for that." then the <laughs> following day or so in the office she's completely stern again I don't know it wasn't it, there were was just many 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 things that I've been through um and people around me had been through and pe- I saw people going through that were funny but some of the stuff too was quite dark I saw people go through extremely terrible things. But at the same time, too, I'm, I'm, that's my brand, essentially, that I'm able to make, to find humour in even the darkest of scenarios. And some of it, too, as, you, as when, when people read the book, they'll see that, yeah, there's some stuff going on in there that was very, very vicious and very, very dark. But still, I was able to, or I still I find humour in it. And that's stuff that happens to me. It's stuff that happens to other people, too. I can give an example on that. If you look at all the um, big scandals of, In fact, I'll give you a Windrush example. Um, I remember there's a segment in the book called the Undercover Brother, and that's uh, looking at the black person in the corporate world who is very, very shrewd and hard nosed, and does what they need to do in order to get to where they're going to. And the example I used was a man called Kwasi Kwarteng, pro- normally known as Kwasi Kwa ting because people don't know how to pronounce his name. So the funny thing about it is that Kwasi was this Kwasi was dating a lady called Amber Rudd, who was the lady behind. Um, who was the actual Home, home Office Secretary, when Windrush actually took place. I pointed out, So, and I pointed out, I made immense, I took immense humour. I found immense humour in him dating somebody who, was, who you would probably mistake for his foster mum, if you're not careful or so. And, then, um, and then him also being used as that person to try and save her career, to go out to the black community and say, no, this Windrush situation in which we are deporting your elders have been here since the 50s since before some of these people were even born this situation is not racist shut up nothing to see here move on and i felt that yeah that was something to that was something that had to be looked at
1: yeah, yeah. i hadn't heard of him so amber Rudd is a british politician just for the listeners out there then so amber Rudd is a british politician yep and quasi is he an mp as well
2: he was an MP, yeah. He is an MP. He's now the business minister in Boris Johnson's cabinet. So, Amber, Boris Johnson's job—not Boris johnson uh, Quasi Quatting's part, part of his job is whenever the Tories get into, or Nelson, um, whenever the Tories get into a bit of a, um, into a bit of a racism problem or so, the first thing they do is that they roll him thank out. You. Yeah, they roll him. out. Thank you very much. They roll him out to make excuses for them. Okay. So yeah, so that's what happens. <laughs>
1: You're listening to the author's podcast with lisa newton please do subscribe to like and share this channel so if you're just tuning in i am talking to the author nels abbey who has written a book called think like a white man which is a self-help book which skewers the prejudices of the modern day british workplace by explaining the rules by which mediocre white men continue to get ahead and it's had some really good reviews. Reading one here, it says, I can't get, I can't recommend this book enough. Hilarious work from Nels Abbey. And that was by Dane Baptiste. So Nels, then, just what advice, briefly, would you have for how to think like a white man? Can you just give us a tip? I know we're all going to rush out and read the book and it is available on Amazon and in all good bookshops. Published by...
2: Canongate.
1: Published by Canongate. That's it.
2: Well, yeah. So I think it's this, right? So <laughs> I should be very clear. This is a hysterical self-help book. It's not. It's serious, but it's not serious at the same time. It's serious, but it's funny. It's not serious, but it's deadly serious at the same time. If you know what I mean. It's balancing two things. It's like a. It's like a. It's like seeing the tears of a clown. Essentially, they're wet, but they are dry at the same time. So I must make clear. I do not think that anybody should think like any old white man. That is useless, that if you think like Dave the deplorable or the broke guy from across the street or somebody else like that or so, who you like and everything else, and you think, let me emulate how this guy thinks or so, you are wasting your time because you will end up with results like that person. By white man, we are thinking of white men with power, with impunity, with prestige, with status, with authority within our society. And those are the white men who rule our society. So, as the old saying goes, when in Rome, you do as the Romans do. And we are in Rome, and the Romans would probably be white people for intent purposes. But you don't want to just think like any old Roman. You want to think like Caesar. So, and I think the key thing that Caesar thinks of, or the same key thing that a Boris Johnson or a Donald Trump always thinks of, the underlying thing that always goes through their minds at any given time, who is demonstrating their actions, is that winning is all that really matters. And it doesn't matter how you win or who gets hurt in your route to winning. What really matters is that you win. No, no matter the cost, no matter the actual pain it causes for anybody, but winning is what really matters. And if you watch a lot of what goes on at the, by the big guys in our societies, for example, one thing they do is they just see to it that they win, no matter what. Ah, oh,
1: there we go. So... Good advice, everyone. I did read your article, which was about Boris, how he wouldn't become prime minister if he was a black man. And that did make me
2: laugh. Boris Johnson, can you imagine a black man with multiple baby mothers around town? Who No one really knows how many baby mothers he has. And he left his wife for 25 years for a woman 25 years younger than him. who is outside number 10. With his girlfriend or so, and the police had to come around to his house a couple of weeks earlier to stop him from potentially from to stop his girlfriend from screaming her head off and everything else. It's impossible that Boris Johnson is possibly the most black stereotype you can think of. That the the Daily Mail caricature of Raheem Sterling or Idi Amin or um Easy E is exactly what Boris Johnson is in real life. But again, once you throw that. The class element into it is an upper middle class man, posh accent, very, very white skin, complete with white hair to go with it, too, or hair described as blonde. Yeah, he gets the protection. He's got the complexion for the protection, the complexion of the class for the protection. He gets it. So he gets away with everything. The first thing that would have been said about, say, if a Nels Abbey showed up was for, for example, if I wanted to become prime minister, the first thing that would be said was, "Hey, the first thing that people would be considering: what's his relationship like with with women or with men? Is he gay? Is he not gay? Do you have any secret baby mamas we should be aware of? You just know that when Barack Obama was running for president, everybody was patiently waiting for that like twenty four year old, twenty <laughs> four year old, um, skinny white woman who he had on the side or so, but she never existed. But everybody thought he would be there for some bizarre reason, but they couldn't really think. They thought that that stereotype that had been created for them in their heads was something that was real and true." Well, the relative matter is that that's stereotype is just projection, because as we all know, black men don't cheat. <laughs> it's it's actually it's a it's very much a white male phenomena. For example, uh, if anything, as Peloputi put it, if you go back to say to back home, you'll often find that men, for example, have multiple wives. That some of them and or they'll have multiple wives or. Or would have had successive wives over a particular period of time in polygamous societies. But Feliputi would always say things like, Well, the difference is that, yeah, he has many wives. Feliputi had about 30 wives, by the way, and I don't advise that for anybody. And he would say that I have 30 wives and I'm honest about it, but the European man will have 30 girlfriends and one wife at home and he'll be lying to his wife that he really has her. We're just, the difference is honesty. And I thought, So, yeah, uh, the difference is honesty, but also lunacy to, say, to a certain degree. But it's the way it is. But yeah, but Boris Johnson, if he was black, would not ever be a number 10. It's impossible.
1: So I'm talking to Nels Abbey, author of Think Like a White Man. Just um to wrap it up then, Nels, are you writing anything else at the moment?
2: Yeah, I'll always be. I'll be writing to the day I die. There's no doubt about it. As long as I have, even if I don't have fingers, God forbid the thought I lose my fingers, I'll probably... I use my tongue to type, but I'll be to the, I'll use I'll be typing to the day I'll be writing to the day I kick the bucket. So yeah, I'm working on a new project right now. I was contacted by a very very senior um, member of the Conservative Party to write his to write his his biography his autobiography with him. Mm-hmm. So I'm writing the autobiography right now. Britain's first black Conservative Prime Minister.
1: Okay, excellent.
2: With your politics, you know we've never had a black conservative prime minister. So, yeah. <laughs> so and that will be, all become clear in due time.
1: <laughs> what kind of books do you like to read?
2: I like to read too, one is I like reading about I like reading nonfiction principally. I like reading about about nonfiction because I think that often the best stories are the ones are the ones that I mean you'll always struggle to to beat the creativity of God. To, to beat the creativity of nature, or so to beat the creativity of the social of, of social society as it is. So often with fiction, for example, we're just mimicking. Even with science fiction, we're just mimicking what's going on in real what's going on going on in real life. So I like to go to the source and find out what is really happening. So I like reading about people's stories, people's ideas, people's thought processes, and how and how to actually how they overcame what they overcame. So I find inspiration in that. But also too, at the same time, too, I like reading. I really do like reading, particularly in recent times, I like reading work by black authors. My favourite author is a bit unorthodox because she's actually often writes about fiction. But my favourite author, that, I can, that well, the author who inspired me, that made it clear to me that I could be a writer and I could be very, very creative in my writing, was a lady called Sister Soldier. And she wrote oh, the book.
1: Oh my goodness. And she wrote the book, The Coldest Winter Ever.
2: Winter Ever. Yeah. That book changed me. That book made it clear to me that, yep, the no, all, because it's one thing when you're reading yeah. the Orwell, who yeah. is, of course, great with a metaphor or a great, great, great satiric, or Mark Twain or um, even the Chinua Chibi, but those guys were so fantastically canonized, they're so fantastically high up there in society or so. But reading Sister Soldier's book, The Coldest Winter Ever, because A, it was hip hop it was my generation's soundtrack b it was can i swear on this program i don't don't even need to swear it was i don't care it was as little night as it was i can't nobody tell me nothing it was it was revolutionary it was very very different and it was a story of a young girl making her way through the tough streets tough streets of america and trying to find a way in life and it was written in such language in such a way that I thought you could not actually write books in, so it had such an impact on me that creativity is is so personal, it's so different, it's so vast that it's something that had to be embraced by me. So I really enjoy reading Sister Soldier's work. I really enjoy reading a lot of the street literature guys as much as I do reading the elite literature guys, and so on and so forth. So yeah, I like people who are very very good in language, but also to have their own style and long way in which they're doing things, and I like unique. Um, unique stories. So of course, I enjoy reading the Orwells. Of course, I, I enjoy reading Wole Soyinka, um, Chimamanda Adichie, Renée Lodge my fr- uh, friend of mine. I love reading her work. I love reading her, her book. Of course, is groundbreaking for a good reason. King de Andrews, is another, f- another guy I'm I'm fam- um, friends with. Good dude. Love reading his work and so on and so forth. It goes. Afua Hirsch. I enjoyed reading her book. But yeah. So that yeah. So that that's pretty much it. I try to read as much as possible. I don't read anywhere near as near as much as I should do. Um, but I do enjoy I do enjoy people's work, particularly right now, given where we are with the black experience and reading new writers and new different ways of actually putting things together. I think it's really important. But yeah, if I think of it overall, so the, the book that really touches me most, um, Sister Soldier, of course, inspired me. But of course, the autobiography of Malcolm X is probably the most important book any black person could possibly want to read that I can think of.
1: Yeah, I remember reading The um, Coldest Winter Ever. I was actually in America at the time and yeah. I was wor- working out there for the summer and I joined the local library because that's the kind of thing I do. What were you doing um, in America? Yes, I worked in New Jersey at a theme park called Morris Piers. I worked there for the summer.
2: Okay, and, that's good. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank God you were in thank god that I, was, I, was, I wasn't looking forward to you saying to me that you worked in the prison or something like, oh, you were a jail warden or something because I was thinking, oh my god, I'm talking to a modern slaver over here. But anyway, <laughs> yes, sorry, go ahead. you were saying
1: Yeah, no, so you know I was there for the summer and I remember reading that book, and I remember it was really graphic, it really pulled you into the story, and it was just so well written, an amazing book.
2: Mm. I can't understand why it's not been made into a film yet. I can understand how Winter Santiago is not a is not a character on everybody's because the book is just it's a film already. It doesn't take much.
1: Yeah.
2: But how she from how she went from the projects or so yeah. how she's living in the projects, but living in this luxury home in the yeah. projects or so to to her dad and the whole family going to it's such a such an amazing story and it's so grip it's so gripping. It's, yeah. and it's just so original that I just can't understand why that that yeah. book has not gone to the page to screen just yet I cannot understand it but there we go that's what it is but I do I do agree with you uh, it's, the situation happened to me too I was in new I was in New York I was in the Bronx this was after the Twin Towers months after the Twin Towers had fallen and I was on the street corner I had about I, had, I think I had about fifty dollars left with me I just wanted to spend it so I want to spend it with people with black people I want to spend my money with black people there I think it's very important that you invest into your own community and then there was one guy selling books on the street corner and then um and this was in the Bronx and I asked the guy and there's a lot of people there and I asked the guy what should I read and he said have you ever have you ever read this book before and he handed me um the Miseducation of the Negro by okay. Carter G Woodson and I, I bought, that and a, book I bought a very very important book so mm-hmm. I I bought that off him and then I said there's anything else I should buy So then all of a sudden like maybe about a dozen or so people who were around there doing god knows what they all started pointing towards this soldiers books saying, yo yo son son you've got to read this book son you've got to read this you got to read this This, book. that's the shit yo and then um <laughs> I thought, okay the coldest winter and i thought oh okay i picked it up and then i i purchased it and that was that and i got back my i got back to london i was at university at the time i went back my so my friend's my university friends, who I'd only ever known for a few months by that point, all of them just came to the airport to Heathrow to pick me up as a surprise, and um, so all of us, like we all caught the log bus back from um, Heathrow to the um, to my halls of residence. And as I was just packing my stuff away from the America trip, one of my friends saw the book, *The Coldest Winter Ever*, and she just said to me, "Do you mind if I go and read this?" So she just started reading the first couple of pages, and she said, "Do you mind if I just read this?" And then um, I said, "Yeah, sure, why not." And then she came back to me about the following afternoon. And this was, I, I mean, I gave this book to her about 7, 8 p.m. in the evening. Mm. And then um, she came back to me the following afternoon saying to me, this book is the best book I've ever written, I've ever read yeah. in my life. It's so amazing. Yeah. I was like, what the heck? And then I thought, so, okay, let me read this myself. And I started to read and I thought, yeah, this book is one of the best books I've ever read. This is brilliant. So, yeah, mm. I've been inspired by it ever since. But, yeah, yeah. there we go. So, Mister the Soldier is getting more of a plug on this podcast <laughs> speak like a white man so yeah there we go
1: (laughs) no but it's always interesting to know what people like to read and if they are you know avid readers and if that inspires them in any way in their own writing
2: when I'm writing when I'm full-time in full project mode whereas in like hey I'm at least halfway through a book that means I'm in serious project mode then I stop reading other people's stuff and i stopped watching stuff that might be somewhat similar to what i've written so you take for example i couldn't i never got the opportunity to read the sellout to read renee's book to read um or to watch dear white people when i was writing think like a white man so i couldn't i i only got to watch i only got to read read and watch everything after would you in this period after think like a white man was fully published and gone out into the world because one thing i could not risk in my head was the threat of the fact that, hey, i would allowed myself to be influenced by another person's, when I say influence, potentially yeah. I've allowed another person's thought process to get into mine and I cannot look myself in the mirror and say, yeah, these were not your thoughts, you were inspired by somebody else's thought. I, I just couldn't let that live with me. This had to come from my mind. It had to be a con, and everything that's in your mind is, of course, influenced by someone else. But I couldn't let something that came out in contemporary times be such a big influence on something that I've written Today, So I just stopped reading and watching people's stuff. And then when I go back and read, if you take, for example, I, How to be Black by uh, Baratunde Thurston was a book that I just knew I had to avoid when it came out because I was writing Think Like a White Man at the time in which it came out. I believe I was anyway. When I finished writing Think Like a White Man, I went to go and read How to be Black. I was pleasantly surprised as to how different they were. And I was actually quite chuffed because obviously the norm, there's competition between us and, and the Americans because the norm, the expectation is always that the, the Americans are naturally better than us at everything because America. <laughs> Americans. And um, yeah, I was quite happy by the fact that, yeah, I, I read it to the end of so it and yeah, my, my book stands up to this quite comfortably. So, yeah, so I was quite pleased about that.
1: I think what you're saying is interesting about other people having other ideas because sometimes when I speak to people and they have an idea for a book of some sort and they think, oh, well, someone else has already done it. But I say, no, everyone's got their own twist. Everyone's got their own ideas on a subject matter and you should never be put off because look how many books there are out there on, let's say, money and finances, for example. It doesn't stop another book coming out there. But I think yours is quite unique, I think, in that sense. Because... I
2: think it's think good too. I agree with that. I, I agree with that too. I feel that, I think that's 100% true. I remember once I was, I was speaking to a gentleman and we were talking about something about, I had this idea that I was going to write, I might do it in the future, but I don't know. I, it's, it's an idea that kind of fizzled off in my mind a little bit, but I'll give it away. If somebody else wants to run with it, maybe just pay me a percentage fee. Um, <laughs> but the key thing, so it's an idea of writing, a book, so diversity schemes, and there's a lot of them around right now. A lot of them are quite, actually quite farcical. So I was thinking of actually writing almost like a book about diversity schemes from the perspective of the diversity scheme so i'll call it something like the dark man rides the white horse which is of course about the um, <laughs> the four pot the four
1: horses of the apocalypse yeah mm-hmm. so um, <laughs> I thought
2: it was uh, the dark man rides the white horse or so and i thought to uh, that would be a good metaphor for it as a title but then it would be written from the perspective of the diversity scheme and we'll call it literally diana diversity would be the name of that would be the name of the, t- the, name, the, name of the um, author and we're literally just look at it, whether the diversity scheme is narrating exactly how these things, what really goes on in these schemes and how it really happens. And everything else are so like, I don't know, you start the day one, and you think you're about to be a big shot and everything else or so, And then all of a sudden, the CEO comes out, takes a picture of you and you think to yourself, oh, yeah, this is so amazing. I just took a picture of the CEO. And then the diversity scheme actually points out that what this person doesn't know or hasn't been thinking of is that it's very abnormal for the CEO to come out and take a picture with any member of staff the, on the first day of actually doing, on, this is for principally for senior diversity, schemes, by the way. So it's very abnormal for the, for the chief executive to come out and take a picture with new members of staff that what essentially has happened is that you think that your career is going to go up in bounds from that moment onwards that you've taken that picture. What you probably don't know is that you've just peaked that after that picture, everything goes down <laughs> there because the purpose is that picture the purpose of the diversity scheme is that picture that's it that's that's what they're after the publicity of it or to show they're doing something and once you've taken that picture so down here it goes from there so again it's going to write in the perspective of experience and everything else satirical Mm -hmm. but i just thought it'd be interesting if you actually expose what these things are like Mm -hmm. and hopefully try to trigger some degree of change Mm -hmm. using satire again as a vehicle to do so
1: well, I actually think that this there is a sea change. I think since all of the, and being in the UK, we do sort of take our kind of direction sort of from, from the USA, but there was a lot of police killings, then there was a lot of Black Lives Matter, and I think that race has become, um, I think it's quite prickly subject, or can be. But I, mm-hmm. I expect, fully expect there to be more books Sort of around this kind of area But sort of not in a way that we've ever seen before So before it's always about, you know Perhaps history or I don't know, Like the black experience if you like But I expect there to be more books that um, Are going to be more sort of tongue in cheek Because if you kind of can't beat them You join them <laughs> And you've got to laugh or you will cry kind of things. So when I'm listening to radio shows and things, and they talk about race. What has struck me, particularly recently, these past few years, is how there seems to be all of these incidences are about race and all the rest of it, but yet no one seems to be racist, if you've noticed. And yeah. our debate is not about what actually happened or what was said, it's, oh, well, that's not really racist because, and I kind of tear my hair out at that. I just think, well, you know, everyone, all this racism, but yet yeah, we can't find a racist out there.
2: Yeah, I that what pretty, yeah you're right. There is, We've got a situation where there's racism without racists. Because again, what tends to happen is that racism has become like the air, like the oxygen that we breathe in. No one's conscious of it, but it's just there. So And it benefits some people and kills others. Yeah, and that's why. Because again, when you start to try and remove actual racism from the systems, the people it benefits, they know deep down it benefits from that they benefit from it they know there's no doubt about that whatsoever they know that look that rate that this environment so i've been there before in which um i've been there i explained it in the book even which people would when it came down to bonuses or came down to pay or came down to promotions came down to everything else that the people within those environments knew that they were benefiting from it there was no doubt about that whatsoever to then expect those people who go on to have their own children and think to yourself that well why should my children compete on a a, a fair basis with these other people, for example, that's not going to happen. What they want is a situation in which they can maintain some degree of extreme advantage, and that's the way it goes. And anything else, yeah, extreme advantage is the right word, and that's where it goes. And anything that actually can anything that balances the scale, that, ba- that tips the scales of that advantage in a different direction or so, is not seen as a good thing. Case in point, America had Barack Obama in power for eight years, eight long years. And everybody thought that, yeah, here we go. This is all good from here. From this point onwards, uh, the only way is up. Everything's all beautiful. We are an amazing, beautiful country, and more more diverse, more everything else is up. And then, yeah, after that, they found the biggest races you could possibly think of. And they put him in power immediately after that. Britain, for example, we do the race of fluctuations significantly perhaps better than anybody else. The year, be- the year before the Olympics, in 2011, we had the biggest riots we've seen for a generation. And it's triggered by the murder of a black man in Britain, a black man in London. And it spread right the way across the country. I don't know, well, a lot of it was opportunist. But uh, a lot of it was opportunist in nature in terms of the riots. But in terms of the initial trigger, yeah, that was, that was heartfelt. That was serious. But what happened after that? The next year or so, Britain portrayed itself to the world as um, this loving multicultural society by virtue of opening in the Olympics, which I can't understand why anybody bought into that. But they portrayed themselves to the world as that. And everybody thought, to, yeah, this is who we are. Loving multicultural girls. everything else. In The exact moment that Britain was actually doing all, um, showing the world how loving and multicultural and diverse we are and everything else, Theresa May was somewhere plotting the hostile environment that led to... Caribbean black British citizens, elderly Caribbean people being deported from Britain. Uh, it's unbelievable. So, yeah, so racism is a very, very deep and duplicitous um, situation in which if you don't understand it, you'll get burnt by it. Because often people think that progress is final or lack of progress is final too, that no, it's not. Sometimes things can be going so well and the next moment you take to the wrong left and bingo, it's over.
1: There you have it, listeners. I'd like to thank my guest, Nels Abbey. His book is called Think Like a White Man, Conquering the World While Black. And it's been published by Canongate. It is available in hardback and ebook format. And then for the listeners out there, Nels, how can we get hold of you to send you fan mail and tell you how amazing your book is?
2: You can send me a, rec- a picture of your receipt of the book at my Instagram. <laughs> I'm joking. You don't send me receipts of anything. You can send me, you, can, you can do, but it would be nice if you put up, if you give me some feedback or if you put pictures of the book up online. That would work wonders. Uh, but I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter at Nels Abbey, which is at N E L S A B B E Y. You can say hello, and i respond, and I'm very, very friendly and loving and caring and yeah, and everything else that's nice and lovely.
1: Excellent. So thank you very much for being a guest on the show. And thank, you, thank you, and thank you listeners for tuning in. It's been another episode of the Authors Podcast where we've been speaking to Nels Abbey, who's telling us how to think like a white man, conquering the world while black. Any final words actually, Nels? Or... For me? Yeah.
2: My final words would be, as I often write in any book that people buy when I sign books, stay black, watch your back.
1: There you have it. Excellent. Thank you very much, Nels.
2: Thank
0: you. You have been listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton, sponsored by Boogles Limited. Tweet the show at Boogles underscore books, spelled B-O-O-G-L-E-Z underscore books. You can also contact your host via the email address Lisa at lisanewton.co.uk and if you want to join our authors community join the inner circle at www.writerbook.net you have just been listening to the author's podcast with Lisa Newton see you next time